always weird standing up here. <laughs> Test. Hello. All right. Uh, our reading for today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. Peace be with you. Uh, Welcome to our time of service and worship today. Uh, Before I begin, I just want to make two quick uh, announcements, uh, alert you. Uh, One is that the uh, Urbana Conference, Urbana Mission Conference, um, is happening uh, this winter. And so uh, this week is the deadline for the uh, semi-early bird special. So uh, I really want to encourage and urge uh, any student who's in college, um, but even if you're not in college, uh, if you have the opportunity, if you have the time, uh, we want to really encourage you to attend. Uh, It's just an incredible conference. Uh, The church, the mission committee... Uh, will support you uh, significantly so that the cost shouldn't be an issue. Um, and it's such a great time of learning. So uh, I've been to it three times myself, and it's just a fantastic, fantastic conference. So I want to encourage everyone to go. Uh, if you are interested, uh, please speak to me or to Pastor Danny, and we'll get you more information. And the other thing is I just want to uh, remind you that uh, at 9.45 Sunday mornings, uh, we do have an adult education class. Uh, we're talking about the, the history of the church and trying to uh, find out more about uh, who we are, our, our history, where we come from, and to see what that might mean for us uh, in our time today. So I want to, again, uh, invite all of you to uh, come to that uh, in the mornings. Um, we are, uh, for those of you who are new here, uh, in the middle of a series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. And so we've covered love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and today we are on the topic of goodness. Uh, let's pray together. God, we uh, thank you again just for our time. We are thankful for this day that you have made. Help us to rejoice and be glad in it. And now in the hearing of your word, uh, open our hearts and minds so that we may come to know your goodness, to know that you are good, to really know that you are good, and to live out our lives in light of that truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our reading today, a man approaches Jesus with a question about eternal life. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that this man is young, and in the Gospel of Luke, that he is a ruler. Mark is a little bit leaner. He only tells us that he's a man, and only at the end of the story do we discover that he is, in fact, a wealthy man. 
But based on his actions and his words, we can gather that he is a religious man who is earnest about his faith. He comes running and kneeling, actions typically associated with slaves. So even though the man likely has a higher social status than Jesus, his actions indicate a deference, a humility, and I would say even desperation. He calls Jesus good teacher, not to flatter him, I think, but because he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about what he's been teaching and the kinds of miracles that he's been doing, and he's acknowledging that they share a common religious worldview, a common ethic about what is good and what is moral. But his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is a little odd. Because even though it's an important question, as a clearly devout Jew, he knows the answer to this. It's something that he would have heard repeatedly every week in synagogue and temple from his parents. It's a question that should have been answered and settled in his heart. And so when we think about this question that he asks and the fact that he's running, he's kneeling in what appears to me like some desperation suggests to me that he is facing a major crisis in his life. He reminds me of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue who also came and kneeled to beg for the healing of his daughter. And that's what usually happens for most of us, isn't it? We coast along with our faith until something painful, some crisis, unsettles us and our faith. And so Jesus here now responds, as he often does, by answering, by not answering the question, but asking another question of his own. Why do you call me good? And then without waiting for an answer, Jesus says, you know the answer about what you should do. And he lists the Ten Commandments beginning with the Sixth Commandment. He skips the first four and goes in sequence six, seven, eight, nine. And then he replaces the tenth, do not covet, with do not defraud. Uh, it could be that you know, he's so wealthy that he has no need of coveting. Like he already has everything, so he doesn't need to, to covet anything. Or maybe the idea of defraud, I think Jesus is trying to challenge him to kind of think about his life and his wealth. Because it's not the result of all your hard work and all your goodness. That your wealth, like all of our wealth, uh, is a result of many factors. Including the exploitation and the defrauding of slaves and other laborers. Jesus then goes 6, 7, 8, 9, changes the 10th, and then he circles all the way back to the 5th commandment, and he has left out the first four. The 5th commandment is to honor your father and your mother. And perhaps because the 5th commandment has a promise that if you honor your father and your mother, you will have a long life, and so perhaps there is this connection with eternal life. But I think considering Jesus' deliberate ordering of these commandments, right? it's not like he forgot you know, the, the order, and he had to kind of just randomly uh, pick out the commandments. Uh, I think the fact that Jesus puts the commandment to honor your father and mother as a very last one, the fact that he leaves out the first four commandments, uh, I think tells me that the crisis that he, this man is facing is related to his parents. Perhaps even the death of his parents, and now this inheritance that he's come into, and what do I do with this? And, and so I think that that could be a possibility here. The man states that he's lived a moral life. He has a clear conscience in regard to keeping 
the law of God. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul, for example, says the same thing. That as a Pharisee, in regard to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. I don't think they're being you know, arrogant or, or they're not claiming uh, sinlessness or perfection. They're only stating that in regard to the law, they have been faithful. They've kept it. And there's no reason to doubt his claims. I think he is a moral man. Jesus accepts his claims. Jesus does not doubt them. But then Jesus looks at him. He gazes intently at him. And he loves him. Now that could mean that Jesus kind of gave him a loving look. Or what I think is that he made a loving gesture. Perhaps putting his arm around the man. By any worldly standard. By any sort of measure. This is a good man. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's humble. He's earnest about his faith. According to the other Gospels, he's young. He's a CEO. On top of that, he's loved by Jesus. Right? His specs are spectacular. Parents, isn't this who you want your child to grow up to be? Isn't this the kind of person you want your children to be? To marry. Isn't this the kind of people we want to have in the church? Yet Jesus says this earnest piety, unquestioned ethical character, and even being loved by him is not enough to inherit eternal life and enter the kingdom of God. It's not enough. Jesus says, You lack one thing. But then he tells him to do five things. He says, go, sell, give, come, follow. In other words, he's challenging him to trust God for his inheritance of eternal life. Rather than trusting in his own goodness, in his wealth, and in his ability and power to do what is good. He's calling him to reorient his life fully to God to the first half of the Decalogue, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And so that's why Jesus begins this conversation by challenging the man's first words of good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Now, over the centuries, uh, some anti-Christian and anti-Trinitarian religious groups have used these words of Jesus to argue that Jesus is saying, I am not God, I am not divine, that I'm just you know, a, a good teacher or I'm a, you know, a rabbi or, or whatever. That Jesus is here refusing to identify himself equal with God by saying, I am not good, only God is good. But that's really to misread uh, what's going on here. Jesus is not disclaiming his divinity and equality with God here. The man came asking a question of ethics. What do I do? And Jesus, in effect, asks him, do you really understand what you are asking? And turns this question of ethics into a question of metaphysics. What must I do is not the important question that Jesus wants him to think about. The question is, who must I follow? It's not, what do I have to do, but who do I have to know? Jesus is not making an, an ontological statement about his identity, but he's asking a rhetorical one, challenging the man's understanding of what is good and what has to be done in order 
to receive or to achieve eternal life. And so instead of just you know, accepting this sort of superficial compliment about being good, Jesus turns it around to focus the man's attention on the character of God and of God's absolute goodness. Because Jesus as the Son, though divine, he is the Son and he receives his goodness from the Father. God is good in and of himself, but Jesus, because of the incarnation, in some ways he has to receive that goodness from the Father. We might even say that Jesus in his incarnation has to grow into or mature in his goodness as a human being. And so Jesus points to the Father as he always does, to give God the glory and to point out that God alone is the only good. That God is good is one of the most common declarations of the Bible. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 106, 1. Praise the Lord, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And on and on and on. The first song most of us probably learned in church is, God is so good, he's so good to me. God is good? Yeah, you say that, right? But do you believe that? Do you really believe that God is good? That he is gracious? That he is generous? That he extends his mercy to where it is undeserved all the time? Do you really believe that? You know, we use the word good in a very broad and general sort of way as meaning anything that's, you know, admirable or attractive, uh, praiseworthy, moral. Uh, we sometimes use it in a very relative sense, like, you know, I'm looking for a good church or I'm looking for a, a good sushi restaurant, meaning something above average, right? Um, we can even use it to mean that it's something that's not so good. Like uh, if you go to Amazon and you want to buy a used book and it says it's good, it means it's not very good, right? <laughs> and then when we use it um, with superlatives, uh, with you know, good, better, best, good is actually bad, right? But when we say God is good, it's not in any sort of relative comparative sense. To declare that God is good is in an absolute kind of sense to attribute a moral perfection to God. So when God creates, he can declare his creation, his work, repeatedly good. Not not that there's something it needs improvement upon, but that it is good. Because he is good. And we are likewise then to recreate that goodness in the work that we do. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created to do good works. But because of sin, our capacity for goodness has been corrupted. The Apostle Paul even says in Romans 7 that nothing good dwells in him because he knows what is good and he even wants to do what is good, but he has no power to do the good that he knows that he wants to do. That's the problem. We can't do the good that we know is good. And then Paul goes on to say in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Like We can't even know what good is until this transformation, this renewing of our minds, a work of the Holy Spirit that must be done in order for us to, dis- to even discern this is good and this is not good. 
And what is good? Micah 6.8 tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's how we can practice goodness. That's how, that's how we bear this fruit in community. But we are not just trying to be a good people doing good things. Anyone can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. As followers of Jesus, there's something I think more important here that's going on. That is that we have to declare as Jesus does that God is good. That God is good all the time. But the question that never goes away, as Philip Yancey often writes, is if God is good and there's so much evil around us, why doesn't God do something about it? In our minds, we can profess that God did do something ultimately in Jesus and the cross. But in times of crisis, in times of personal suffering, the ultimate truth of the cross does not always help us. Right? We have good company. Moses, Elijah, the psalmist, Job, and Jesus, the prophets, they all, in times of personal and communal suffering, wondered out loud, God, how can you let this happen to me? Why are you letting this happen to me? Aren't you supposed to be good all the time to me? Haven't you asked this question at some point in your life? As God's chosen people, this was Israel's struggle. And the way they tried to resolve it was to try to make this one-to-one correspondence between obedience and prosperity. When the nation suffered military defeat or famine, they said it was because the king didn't follow God and led the people astray, and so God was displeased and angry and punished the nation. They argued that if only we had a king who really, truly, wholeheartedly followed God, then we will be prosperous. We will have peace, shalom, throughout the world and in our land. I mean, it's a compelling explanation. And most of the history of Israel is written through this theological lens. So when the nation is going through some really tough times, some really rough, rough times, the hope is we just need a good king. And you know how the the history of Israel ends. At the end of 2 Kings, at the end of the the kind of the, the history of Israel, Josiah becomes king. 2 Kings 23-25, it says this about him. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. I mean, this guy is awesome, right? He purifies the temple. He restores the um, worship. He brings back the the biblical laws. Uh, They celebrate Passover Uh, He destroys the places of idolatry in the high places. I mean, this guy is great. He's the king we've been waiting for. Now God has to bless us, and we will have military success. There will be no more famine in the land, and everything is going to be great. And what happens? Josiah dies in battle. Jerusalem gets sacked, and people are either killed or scattered or sent off to exile in Babylon. 
So much for that theory. But when Jesus comes, they think the same thing. He's even better than Josiah. He will surely lead us now into victory over the Romans. And we will have peace. But what happens? Jesus is crucified and his followers are scattered and persecuted. And yet there are those who continue to insist on this way of thinking today. The so-called prosperity gospel, for example. The argument is the same. God is good all the time. And my comfort, my prosperity is a sign of God's goodness and my faithfulness. You know, life would be so much easier if this were true, wouldn't it? We can look at anybody else and we could judge perfectly based on someone's bank statements, right? If someone's healthy and they're wealthy, then we know they are faithful and obedient and God has blessed them. If someone is poor and sick and suffering, then, well, you know, they deserve it. But you and I know that that life is is not that way, that there are inexplicable, undeniable, and unpredictable suffering and evil in the lives of everyone, the good and the bad. Why is there such suffering? You know, I can't give you um, a satisfying answer to that. I really, in fact, I I can tell you I will never give you a fully satisfying answer to that. Uh, But I know this much. I know this much. I know that God is with us in our suffering. I know that God is with us in our sin and in our death. And I know that the suffering of Israel was not mere punishment or retribution for sin, but a sign of the mystery of God's redemptive plans. I know that we are called to be with one another in our suffering. And I know that Israel's role and Jesus' role in suffering as a suffering servant is fulfilled not in victory, certainly not in military victory, but in defeat and in failure, and that somehow God will turn to good, all of those things, because God is good. I know that, and I trust that. Matt Rogers is a pastor of New Life Christian Fellowship Church in Virginia. He became a pastor there for about a year when what was then called the worst mass shooting in American history happened on the campus of Virginia Tech, where 33 students were killed. I mean, that's his community. That's his church. What do you do when that happens? Like, I can't even imagine being a pastor in that situation. Going through that, how can you possibly declare that God is good all the time? He says this. I wasn't looking for answers. I knew the answers. Meaning, like, you know, he heard about the kinds of Uh, answers that are given for why there is suffering in the world, why there is evil. He knew the answers. But then he says, I was searching for a way to experience God as good when the world around me appeared dark and helpless. He he wasn't looking for for an intellectually satisfying rationale. He wanted to be able to experience God as good when the world around him told him otherwise. And that's what he did. Over time, over a long time, he trusted, and that's what he found. He experienced the goodness of God in the midst of profound darkness, maybe in a conversation, in a meal, in community. Mary Oliver has a line in one of her poems about how it took years to understand 
that the box of darkness that she was given was also a gift. Can you believe, can you trust that God is good, that even darkness is a gift? That's faith. That's faith. And you know, it's, it's, um, I think a lot of people today, we, in some ways, they're, they're synonyms, but faith is not confidence. In fact, in some ways, they're, they're complete opposites. Faith or faithing is, is a verb. To have faith is to, to trust. It's, it's, you're acting as if you trusted someone. It's a decision to act. That's faith. Based on trusting someone. Confidence is a noun. Confidence is how you feel about your particular decision. So you can have a lot of faith and no confidence. And you can have a lot of confidence and no faith, right? If you study really hard for a test, you can have a lot of confidence because you've mastered the materials. You don't need faith because you know that stuff and you know you're going to get an A. But faith looks a little different, right? I remember uh, when my kids were little and we were taking, uh, trying to teach them how to swim, um, I, would, I would be in the pool and I would tell my kids, um, jump, you know, come on in, jump into the pool. Right? And you know, they're like three, four, five, and they're, they're terrified of the water. They, they think they're going to drown. They think dad's not strong enough to catch them. You know, like all kinds of stuff. They, don't, they have so much fear. They have no confidence that this is going to be fun and that, you know, dad's going to catch me. But I keep telling them, I'll catch you, I'll catch you, it'll be fun, it'll be fun. And so at some point, they've got to decide, they've got to act on faith. Their faith in me has to be greater than their lack of confidence and their fear. That's the decision of faith. That's when you jump. And that's when you experience this, like, this is fun. We jump because our trust in the Father is greater than our lack of confidence. In the darkness, when I'm in the darkness, I might not have confidence in God's goodness because I'm not experiencing it because the fear in me is so great. But I can still trust. I can still have faith. I can still have faith. Right? Remember somebody said, don't forget in the dark what you saw in the light. You can still have faith in the midst of that darkness. You can still remember and trust that God is good, even when it doesn't seem that way right now. You know, this is so vital to me because, you know, we're increasingly living in a culture where we are being told, and particularly our children are being told, to trust their feelings above all else. There's so much cognitive distortion because we're teaching our kids that feelings are the most important things, and that's what you have to trust. Like, if you feel like you're in danger, then you, you must be in danger. If it feels good, then, then it's okay. If it feels like someone has insulted you, then yes, they probably did. If the facts don't feel right, then find alternative facts. If I'm confident and feel good about myself, then I can do anything. No, you can't. You can't. If God doesn't feel like he's being good to me right now, then God must not be good. I'm going to trust my feelings. No. You choose faith. You choose faith. You trust, you choose to trust someone 
against your feelings because you have known God over the years. You have the history of God's goodness in scriptures and you will by faith, by faith, not allow one terrible event or even a series of terrible events or your lack of confidence and fear to take over your faith, to distort all of that with your temporary feelings. You know, as I read this story this week, I realized that the man's problem was fundamentally that he did not trust that God is good, trustworthy, gracious, generous beyond measure. He wanted assurances that if he did what he was supposed to do, then God is obligated to keep his end of the bargain. Since I kept the commandments, God, you owe me because I was good enough. You owe me eternal life. And when Jesus loved him and told him to follow him, he he walked away because he refused the relationship. He was willing to do what was necessary for eternal life, but he was not willing to accept the love of Jesus, to trust the goodness of God. Eternal life is offered by the goodness of God and is to be received in a trusting relationship. It is not achieved by the satisfactory keeping of a set of rules. You know, you know what comes right before this story? Right before this story is the story where Jesus is teaching about divorce and children. You know, women in that time, um, you know, had like no power and children had even, even less status than that. And Jesus says, Jesus says, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. It belongs to them, to the weakest, not the strongest, to the poorest, not the richest. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. The kingdom is to be received by those who know they have no power, they have no wealth, they have nothing to offer. And then after this story, Jesus is telling his disciples about how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God and then the Disciples are, again, they're just scandalized, they're shocked, appalled by his words. Because they assume, like many others, that, you know, if you're rich, then God must be blessing you. And so, therefore, the rich must have, you know, the, the fast lane to heaven. And Jesus says, no, they don't. In fact, it's harder for them. It's harder for them. Because they're so used to having power and control and relying on their own efforts. And Jesus says to his disciples the second time, he says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He addresses them. As children. That's what disciples are. They're not morally superior. They're not more powerful. They're, you know, they come simply to Jesus and they let Jesus love them, to lay his hands on them, and to bless them. We bring nothing. Nothing. You know, uh, this past Tuesday, I was working on my, uh, the weekly reflection, the Wednesday Word, and I shared with the session that normally I spend about two hours on the Wednesday Word, uh, but this week, for whatever reason, I was just really, really struggling. I was just spending way too many hours on it. Uh, I must have started a half a dozen different reflections, and just none of them, you know, was any good. And so at one point, uh, I was so frustrated, and, you know, my deadline was coming up, so I wrote, I've got nothing. And I was about to send that off as my uh, weekly reflection. Um, in a way, I wish I'd done that. 
Um, you know, because I tried really hard and uh, nothing was happening. And so I thought, well, that, that's it. Um, but of course, you know, I'm a responsible, good Presbyterian. And so I had to write something that, that is helpful. And I've got nothing. I thought, you know, that's not going to be very helpful. So I kept working and eventually I wrote uh, what I wrote. But, you know, one of these days, I'd like to stand up here, uh, maybe my last Sunday before I retire, <laughs> and tell you, I've got nothing. You know, not in an irresponsible or hopeless sort of way, but just, you know, that's the truth. I've got nothing. That's not a bad version of the gospel, but I realize now, of course, I've just spoiled it because now I've tried to make use of this nothing and now it's become something. But it's so hard to just receive the grace and the goodness of God. It really is. Because we're so used to achieving and getting everything we want with our effort. You know, the, the story is usually interpreted as a man who rejects Christ, uh, rejects the call of God in his life, and, and walks away. That's probably true. Um, Jesus calls him to follow him and to trust the goodness of God, but he walks away. He's sad. He's sorrowful. Uh, he refuses. He rejects to walk humbly with his God on the road with Jesus. It's hard for him. It's hard to trust God's goodness. And Jesus says, yeah, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. But then Jesus says, but all things are possible with God. So maybe this guy walks away sad, crushed, but maybe later he'll come back. I believe that walking away could be temporary. Maybe he will discover in time that his sadness is also a gift. This doesn't have to be the end of his story. Your sadness doesn't have to be the end of your story. I think Jesus would say, yeah, it, it's hard for the rich to be saved. It, it's hard when, when you're struggling with darkness. It's impossible, in fact. But that's why I'm here. That's why I came. No one, not even the rich who walk away, are beyond my goodness, beyond my grace. No one is beyond that. Having a relative goodness of our own is not enough. Having a lot of goods in our lives is not a sign of our goodness or of God's blessing necessarily. Only God is good. Only God's goodness. Only God's goodness leads to life and to life eternal. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, teach us in faith to go, to sell, to give away, to get rid of our goodness and come into your presence and follow you. God, help us to abide in you, to trust you, and so bear much fruit and bring glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we want to uh, receive into